by exiting at that door there. Hey, uh, Pastor Jeremy is down in Washington, D.C. at his uh, dad's retirement party this weekend. And one of the uh, cool benefits of being a senior pastor is you can decide to preach on the best parable ever told, the prodigal son, where God's grace is just gushing forward. You can choose to preach on that, and you can have your youth pastor preach on the, uh, the, the unjust or shrewd uh, manager. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Appreciate that a whole lot. You get the greatest story of grace that even non-believers love to hear, and I get this obscure passage that's really difficult to understand and talks about money. All right. I was, uh, I was told that um, when I preach, I get really stiff and serious, that I should preach the way I talk to the youth. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to give that a try this morning. It's not, it's not irreverent. I hope it's not irreverent. But it's, uh, it's going to be a little more relaxed than my, uh, than my pulpit style has been in the past. We'll just see how you like it and where it goes and if it helps you guys listen better. Um, God has some really powerful and difficult things to say to us this morning. And um, I hope we'll be able to hear them. I don't particularly care to talk about them because it is asking you to give your money generously. That's what the text is about. And um, if you're a visitor with us this morning, go to sleep for the next 30 minutes. Don't pay any attention to what I have to say. Uh, if, you're, if you're a serious follower of Jesus, this is God's word to us this morning. Um, before we read it together, uh, let's bow and pray. God, it's an awesome uh, privilege and responsibility to stand before your people and open up your word. Uh, One I'm clearly not worthy of, and I wouldn't dare do it if I wasn't confident that you're standing up here with me. So I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that the words that I speak would be true and powerful and change lives, and anything that I might say that isn't true would be quickly forgotten. Uh, Be with us this morning, Lord. Uh, We want to meet you. We want to connect with you here. We want to hear from you. I ask this in Jesus' name. People of the Lord said, Hey, uh, Luke 16 is where we are, and I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bible, so if you find Luke 16, verse 1, you can shout out the page number for those that have Pew Bibles. But if you don't know where Luke 16 is, you can, you can take this sermon off, because this truly is a message uh, that's being spoken by Jesus to his disciples, which we'll see in a minute when we look at verse 1. But let's read this together. I'll read it. You can follow along, and then we're going to kind of go verse by verse in the next 45 minutes to an hour and a half that we have here together this morning. (laughs) Now, I was going to take a poll. Do you want me to try to do this like a dramatic reading like Pastor Jeremy? Or should I just read it? Dramatic reading? Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Because you cannot manage any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes, their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A 
thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right. I want to look at one parable, two questions, three tests, and then the bottom line. So if this will help you stay awake, there's a sermon notes in there, with a little fill in the blanks. If that will help you attend, then please pull us out and grab a pencil. If it uh, is just a distraction, then uh, toss it to the side. It's worth what you paid for it. Well, I want to start right at verse 1. There's a lot that we learn from the very first half of this very first verse. Jesus told his disciples, I was not kidding around earlier when I said if you're a, a seeker, if you don't follow Jesus yet, that you don't have to attend to this message. I mean, hopefully there will be something there for you as well. But Jesus is not speaking uh, to those outside of his kingdom, of his followers at this time. In Luke 15, which we just left, the story of the three lost people, Jesus is talking to sinners and Pharisees, not his followers. His followers were there, but that's not who he's addressing. You can go back there and look if you don't believe me. But here, Jesus has changed his audience. It says, Jesus told his disciples. So in that half of a verse, we get who's speaking. A no-brainer, that's the easy one, Jesus. And who he's speaking to, his disciples, his followers. The guys who have committed and left everything and gone and followed him. So that's who this message is to this morning. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Once upon a time, there was a man. All right? So this, the, the literary genre here is simple. This is a parable. And actually, this is a true parable. Jesus used the word parable for all different kinds of teachings that today, by our English, English literary standards, we would give different uh, titles to some of those teachings. They wouldn't all be classically called parables. Some would be uh, allegories. Right? Allegories, you know, have, uh, have different characters that represent different things. A parable is a simple short story that makes one point. That's what a parable is as we understand it today in our, in, in our literary understanding. And this parable of Jesus is a true parable. I believe it's really just a story that's making one point. We get into trouble if we start to try to say, well, this person represents this, and this person represents that. And some of Jesus' parables, uh, such as the lost son, we can do that. Uh, but this isn't one of them. And once we go there, it makes it a lot easier to understand. We don't have to try to make a certain figure fit uh, a certain, uh, certain person, such as God. We get into a lot of trouble if we try to make the, the, uh, the rich man in the story represent God. Although oftentimes in Jesus' parables, the Lord or the owner would represent God. It's clear to me in this parable that that's not the case. 
But we'll get there in a little bit. All right, so it's told by Jesus, it's told to the disciples, and it's a parable. And I've already given you a little bit of a literary context. This story immediately follows the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. And in fact, the word accused of wasting his possessions that we have here in the first verse is the same Greek word used in that parable for squandered. Squandered. It's almost like Jesus tells the parable of the lost son and his squandering and says, and that reminds me of another story about squandering. Um, that's the literary context. That's what precedes this, this teaching. And some historical background and context that might help us understand this passage a little better. In Jesus' day, there were the landowners, the wealthy, and then there were those who either worked as indentured servants or slaves or hired laborers. So there was an upper class and a lower class and a very, very, very small middle class, very tiny middle class. The landowners owned everything. And the people that worked for him owned nothing but worked really hard, either as slaves, because they'd been paid and bought, I mean, not paid, but they'd been bought, and were owned by the land uh, lord, or as laborers, day, you know, getting their day wages. Well, this man, uh, this shrewd manager, is one of those rare guys who's worked his way to the middle class. Um, he is not a day laborer, but he's not wealthy. He doesn't own the land. He works for the man who owns the land, in fact, he's been entrusted with all that the man who owns the land has. He's his manager, his steward, his, his uh, person who keeps all of his books and takes care of all of his money and obviously collects all of his debts. So he is in a very, very privileged position for a non-land-owning person of his time. It's a really good job. So he is bumming when he finds out that he's losing it. So he called, he called him in, the rich... Uh, owner calls him in and asks him, what's up? I, you know, you've been ripping me off. Give me an account of your management. You can't, you can't work here anymore. I'm going to take away your job because you've been squandering, misusing my money. So this guy obviously is, uh, is feeling the pressure. He's losing a really good job. It doesn't say how long he's had this job, but he's grown accustomed to it. Because he says to himself in verse 3, what am I going to do? I got my pink slip. I'm out of this great job. And, you know, he'd been in a, in a white-collar job for so long that his muscles had atrophied, so he can't dig. You know, he's not strong enough to dig. And he certainly, you know, has too much pride. He doesn't want to be out on the streets begging. So he's like, he's, he has this little soliloquy to himself trying to figure out what's he, what he's going to do. He says, I know what I'll do in verse 4. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Like, I got a plan. I got to take care of my future because it's looking pretty bleak right now. I'm losing my job. What am I going to do? Here's what I'll do. So he calls in his master's debtors. He probably called in more than just these two. Uh, the Greek makes it sound like he called in all the people who owed his master money, but he refers specifically to two. And it's interesting that both of these two debtors were really wealthy people. You know, why, you know why I know that? Because their debt was extremely high. Uh, their debt was really high. Um, they had to have a lot of resources or they, they wouldn't have been loaned this amount of money. But 800 gallons is what the first one owes of olive oil. The commentaries say that that's between three to five years wages for the average laborer. That's how much was owed. It's a lot of money. All right. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, make out 400. 
So there's this rich guy who owes another rich guy a lot of money, and he says, okay, I'm going to forgive half of your debt. Remember me in a few weeks when I'm out on the streets, because I'm going to need a place to work and a place to live. And I've just given you somewhere between one and a half and two and a half years of the average laborer's you know, uh, wage. I've just given you a really nice gift. Uh, gift givers would uh, indebt themselves to one another back in, in Jesus' time, similar to today. If you were given a, a really nice gift, you, you owed that person. It's not that different today, but it was certainly that way then. And this man has now uh, indebted himself, in a sense, to this man who's cut his, his uh, debt in half. And he goes to the second guy, how much do I owe you? A thousand bushels of wheat. Commentators say this is between 10 to 15 years of the average laborer's salary. Big debt. He tells him, take it, right out 800. The guy is shrewd in that he is providing for his future. He knows it's coming soon. He's just got his pink slip. He's been told, you're not going to work here anymore. And he's thinking ahead, what am I going to do? And he uses the resources at his disposal shrewdly. Now, we can get hung up here when we get onto this word shrewdly in verse 8, where the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. That's kind of a, a difficult line there. It's a really difficult line if we think that the rich man is God. We can throw that right out. Rich man doesn't have to be God. Um, but even so, why would he commend this guy for ripping off his money. I, I like to think of it this way, and I may be wrong, but I like to think of it as kind of a mafia boss, and I won't do a mafioso impression. We'll save that one for Jeremy. But a mafia boss whose underling has stolen from him, but he's been real sneaky about how he did it. And he comes in, and the boss says, Oh, good job. That was really a good... I can't believe you did that. You pulled that off right before he, so to speak, fires the young man, right? Um, shrewd. Here's how J.B. Phillips uh, translates the first half of verse 8. J.B. Phillips uh, did a modern translation of the New Testament back in 1950-something, and I love this. He says, Now the master praised this rascally steward because he had been careful for his own future. So if we don't have this, uh, the owner, the rich owner being God, then this man, who could have been unscrupulous a bit himself, it's not too difficult to see. He's like, okay, yeah, that was pretty shrewd. Yeah, you were thinking ahead of what you were going to do in the future. He's still fired. And there's no grace. Now, if the rich guy represented God, based on last week's message of the prodigal son, would he fire the guy? No, he wouldn't fire the guy. He'd sit outside his gate waiting for the guy to come back to him. Right? You squandered all my money, but I'm going to wait for your return and then I'm going to throw a big party for you. Right? That's God's grace. This is a very different uh, landowner. In fact, you'll notice if you go back to Luke 15 that, that uh, Jesus doesn't use the adjective rich to describe that, uh, that father. Luke has a lot to say about the rich, and almost every single time it's pretty negative. Uh, so I don't think Luke is implying by any stretch of the imagination that this owner represents God. The focus of this parable isn't on the owner, it's on the manager. All right, so this marks the end of the parable and the beginning of Jesus' commentary. The second half of, of verse 8 
is where we start uh, what Jesus has to say about this parable that he's just told. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, is this merely a statement of fact or is it a statement of frustration? The jury's kind of out here. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus does teach his followers to be shrewd as snakes and at the same time as innocent as doves. But this is a topic for another sermon. We do have communion this morning. I was told I couldn't go beyond 55 minutes. But that is, a, uh, seriously, it is a, a, a sermon topic that's an important one. What does it mean to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves? What did Jesus mean by that? But I don't believe that that's what he's getting at here in this parable. I don't think that's his point. I think his point in this parable is that our material possessions were to use them to prepare for our, our eternal futures. And I think this idea comes into really sharp focus in the next few verses. So two questions. Verse 9, if you're filling in blanks, we're getting to some blanks here. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So question one, how can I use worldly wealth to gain friends? Any suggestions? We can uh, forgive debts. We can give generous gifts. We can give the youth pastor a really nice Christmas present. It's just a suggestion. We can share our summer home. Let other people use it when we're not in it. Or our boat or our ski condo if we have one. or Whatever it is that, that belongs to us, it's in our possession. that We're stewards and care, caretakers over we can use that generously for other people and that will win us some friends. I would imagine. If you want to try it out on me, I'm open to seeing if it'll work. You know, we could throw parties in people's honor. There's a lot of things we can do to take our material resources and use them so that other people will like us and want to be our friends. I mean, I don't think it's too hard to figure that out. Most of us learned that lesson when we were in second and third grade going to someone's birthday party. If you brought the nicest gift, you know, so the second question is a more difficult question tied to this verse. Because the last half of the verse talks about being welcomed into eternal dwellings. How can I use worldly wealth for eternal purposes? Which I think is really the crux of this parable this morning. How can I use worldly wealth for eternal purposes? Well, the first thing we can do is we can give generously to those who are in need. The poor, the widow, the, orf- the orphan. That would be the orphan. Yeah, the orphan, the... Uh, the sick, the helpless, the defenseless, people without a voice, the unborn, all those folks who are disadvantaged, we can give generously to those, to those people. Secondly, I think we can give generously uh, to those who bring the good news of Jesus to the lost world. Our missionaries who are living on their faith promises when I was in high school, there was a ministry called Young Life at Hingham High, and there was a guy named Steve Oliver who um, went to our high school, and he spent a lot of time breaking down barriers in a relationship with me to the point where I could hear the gospel and come to put my faith in Jesus. And I give him a whole lot of credit for my salvation. Obviously, God did the work, but he used this guy, Steve Oliver. But Steve Oliver, at the time I didn't know this, but Steve Oliver was being supported financially by all kinds of people. Some were sitting here in the congregation this morning. And if they hadn't been writing their checks to Young Life, there wouldn't have been Young Life at my high school. 
And now I'm reformed, so this isn't true. You know, if I'm one of the elect, I'm going to come to faith. Amen. But from a human perspective, if Steve Oliver hadn't been at my high school, then I wouldn't have heard about Jesus, and I wouldn't be going to heaven, and I wouldn't be standing before you preaching this morning, and some of you go, oh boy, <laughs> that's a mixed blessing. <laughs> All right. My point is, we give our money to support those who are bringing the gospel to people. There's eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. It makes a difference forever in someone else's life. And we're going to get a little bit later to the point where we see that... Uh, we're going to be welcomed. Actually, we can go there right now. We're going to be welcomed into eternity by those people. Now, they're not standing at the gate deciding whether we get in or not. All right? There's one person that stands at the gate and intercedes between us and heaven and God and getting in, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So these people aren't going to like open the door and welcome us in, but I think they're going to be kind of like a receiving line when we get there. Jesus says, hey, you trusted in me, you're in. And now here are all the people who want to welcome you because all of these people are people that you influenced by your resources, your time and your money while you were on earth. And they're here partly because of how you used your time and your money. Now, there's a real schmaltzy song by, uh, by Ray Boltz. 1995. Yeah, let's see if I can find it here. If I can't, you're, uh, you're in luck. But it talks about thank you for giving to, to the Lord. You guys know that song? Some of you know that song. And it talks about, you know, here it is. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. A missionary came to our church. His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took that gift. And that's why I'm in heaven today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. And it is kind of schmaltzy. Um, but there's some truth in that. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. How we use our material resources can make an eternal difference in someone else's life. If we give and support those who are out there doing God's work, wherever they may be around this globe, right here in our backyard, they're going out and bringing the good news, there'll be some people in heaven... Just as when I get to heaven, there's going to be some Young Life donors who I now know exist. At the time when I was in high school, I didn't even know they existed. I'm going to want to find them and I'm going to want to shake their hand and say, thank you for writing those checks to Young Life. Because when you did that, Steve Oliver was free to go into my high school and tell me about Jesus. And now I'm here because you wrote those checks. And I'm going to be like, they're going to be welcoming me. And they're going to be like, yeah, there's one. I made a difference in his life. All right, so, uh, so giving generously to those who bring the good news of Jesus to the lost world. Also, giving generously to the life and ministry of our church. Almost my voice cracked on that a little bit. You know, this is the worst possible job to stand up before you guys and tell you, you know, I get paid by the church and I like my paycheck and you really need to give more money so that I can get paid. Like, I don't want to have to do that. And I'm really a little ticked off at Jeremy that he gave me this passage. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. He's down in D.C. Um, but the reason I do it is because it's what God's Word has to say. And you know what? We need to give, not because the church needs our money, but because we need to give. Because of what it does for us. Out of obedience to God, the effect that it has on our lives, not because giving's behind budgeting or spending, or I don't even pay attention to those sheets, but it's one or the other. Uh, but you know what? If giving were ahead of spending or budget or whatever it is, I'd still be preaching the same sermon because Jesus still taught the same parable and Jeremy still stuck me with his text today. 
So giving to our church, giving generously to the life and ministry of our church, where people meet Christ and are nurtured in their faith. As you give to South Shore Baptist Church, you're making a difference in the lives of all kinds of different people. I could tell you, we don't have time this morning, but I could tell you stories of teenagers in whose lives you're making a difference when you write out your check to South Shore Baptist Church. Um, you know, every ministry head could come up here and talk about the changed lives that they've seen as a result of their ministries. And it's all tied back to you being willing to sacrificially and generously give of your money to support the ministry of the church. All right, three tests. Verses 10 through 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. This is the test for one's readiness for greater riches. Greater is the blank there. How one uses a very little. Jesus is saying, I give you a little bit and I see what you do with it. And if you use it generously and for eternal purposes, then I'm going to give you a little bit more. But if you don't use it for good purposes, for eternal purposes, for my purposes, then I'm not going to give you anything. It's like the parable of the talent. The talents gives different amounts to different folks and then how they use it determines how much reward they get. Um, It's a difficult teaching. It's a difficult teaching, but it's Jesus saying it. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. So to, you know, for Jesus to find out whether you're ready for more sees how you use what he's given you already. Verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? True riches. What are true riches? Spiritual riches. Heaven. Eternity. With God. The test for one's readiness for spiritual, true riches is how one uses worldly riches. That's, did you guys know one's going to respond to that? That's an ouch of a statement. The test for your readiness, my readiness for, e- for eternal spiritual riches and blessings is how I use the worldly riches that I'm given here today. That's what Jesus said. I don't particularly care for it, but that's what Jesus said. Our use of money reveals our spiritual condition. If you want to know someone's heart, look at their checkbook and their calendar. Verse 12, And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The test for one's readiness to own property is how one cares for someone else's property. This is the idea of stewardship. Now, the Native Americans have a lot of things wrong, but one thing they have right is the idea that no one can like own that which is God's. It's like you don't own property, you take care of property. Well, that's a biblical idea. It's a a biblical truth. We don't own anything. Everything that we have has been given to us by God to be used for His glory. But it's all His. We're just the stewards. We're just the managers. And how well we manage it determines a couple of things. How well we manage it if you put these three tests together, here's, let me read this sentence because I think it's a good one. How I use what God entrusts me with in this life will determine my riches in this life and my future riches in the world to come. We're going to have levels of blessing in heaven. That's another sermon as well. Right? How I use what God entrusts me with in this life 
will determine not only my riches here in this life, how much more He'll trust me with, but also my future riches in the world to come. How important is it how we choose to use our money? I want to read you a Joel Olstein quote. I've noticed that the most generous Christians have always been the most happy and almost invariably the most prosperous. Men trust good stewards with larger and larger sums, and so, and so frequently it is with the Lord. He gives cartloads to those who give bushels. Joel Olstein didn't say that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that. Knowing the true author, let me read it again. When I, when I saw that quote, I was like, wow, that sounds like the health and wealth gospel to me. You know, did Robert Schuller say that? Who said that? Give your money generously and God will give it back to you. No, call 1-800. The lines are open. We'll take your credit cards. I mean, that was my response. This was October 26, just a few days ago, uh, morning by morning. Charles Spurgeon. It's a devotion. I read that and I was like, wow, that's got to go in my sermon. Let me read it again. I've noticed that the most generous Christians have always been the most happy and invariably the most prosperous. Men trust good stewards with larger and larger sums. And so frequently it is with the Lord. He gives cartloads to those who give bushels. C.H. Spurgeon. All right, so let's get to verse 13 in Jesus' bottom line here. And then we'll get to the table. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here are the blanks. You cannot serve God and money. If you love God, you will hate money. This is the logic from, from what Jesus just said here. If you love money, you will hate God. Um, not my ideas, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. If you're devoted to God, you will despise money. If you're devoted to money, you will despise God. I think I've done justice to, to what Jesus said there in verse 13. I think it has a, a kind of a big impact. It's kind of one of those... Uh, I'm cautious to accuse Jesus of hyperbole, but um, I think it's a lot like the Luke 14:26 verse that Seth preached on very well, I might add, a few weeks ago. In Luke 14:26, Jesus said, "If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." And if you weren't here for Seth's uh, exegesis, his explanation and preaching on this text. I would encourage you to, to go online and download that and listen to it because it's really good. But the, to summarize, it's basically we're to hate money in the same way we're to hate our families by not allowing either money or our families or anything else for that matter to take a higher priority in our lives than our walk with Jesus Christ. Relative to Jesus Christ, our attitude towards everything else is one of hatred in comparison the love that we have for Jesus. So how do we know if we love money? I put together a, a little test. We are now leaving God's Word and we're going to Rich's imagination. So be fairly warned. This is not the Word of the Lord. This is the Word of Rich. Um, 
If this intrigues you, there's copies in the table in the, in the back. You can pick one up on your way out. But I have a, put together a, a test to see how much we love money. Do you gamble or play the lottery? It's kind of like, you know, a test for alcoholism. If you have two or three of these things, you might be an alcoholic. Do you ever shop to cheer yourself up? Do you own something so dear, a prized possession or treasured possession, that you would not give it up no matter what? When making a purchase, is status or what other people think of your purchase, is that a consideration? Do you dream about you would, what you would do if you were given a large sum of money? Guilty. Do you make purchases which you hide from your spouse or loved ones? Some of you guys do that. You buy and I, well, I know he's going to be upset that I bought this. I better not let him see it. Or other way around. Do you have a large credit card debt due to purchasing non-essential items? Do you do recreational shopping or recreational selling on eBay? Yeah, that would be me. Do you complain about never having enough money, even though you are meeting all your immediate financial obligations? Do you give to your church and other nonprofit organizations based on what you have left after saving and paying your monthly bills? If you answered yes to two or three of these, you may be a lover of money. You're in my company, just so you know. I I made up the test and I fail most of them. The only thing I don't do is play a lottery. <laughs> All right. I also came up with uh, six antidotes, and I'm sure there's many more, uh, to loving money. One, cheerfully and prayerfully decide how much the Lord wants you to give to your church and other ministries and give you of your first fruits before you save and before you write out your monthly bills. Practice fasting from food, from buying non-essentials, from eBay, from Amazon.com. Um, from all online shopping, from garage sales, from gambling, from window shopping, from lottery tickets, from your weekly poker game, from malls, from store catalogs. Three, give your time and expertise pro bono for free to someone in need of your service, someone who is in no position to return the favor. Four, give away a prized or treasured possession to someone in need. Or sell it on eBay and give the money to someone in need. Don't sell it on eBay, just sell it. Five, make a frugal, bare-bones monthly budget and commit to giving away 100% of your discretionary income at least one month each year. Number six, visit a homeless shelter. Or if you have the resources, travel to a two-thirds world nation and get first-hand exposure to extreme poverty. There's a danger of legalism in both my tests and my antidotes. One does not curb one's love for money on the strength of one's own determination or merely by uh, committing to some new disciplines. Well, the antidote to love of money, my, my list, it may be of some practical help to some people. I hope it is. The real issue is where we set our hearts and our minds. If, uh, I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bible, but if you turn over to Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read the first three verses. This was the theme for our summer mission to Jamaica this summer. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If our hearts and our minds are set on Jesus Christ and on heaven, on eternity, then using our temporal material resources for eternal purposes, that's just going to be a logical and practical response to what our priorities are. 
May God keep our hearts and our minds set on things above. In a moment, Pastor Seth is going to come and lead us to the communion table where simple bread and simple grape juice will turn our hearts and our minds towards Jesus Christ and things eternal. I ask that we prepare for the table by standing and asking God in song to set our hearts and our minds on things that are above. So if you would join me in standing. Together we sing a song to get us ready for the table. I have some uh, high school students and one of my youth leaders is going to come and join me in this, I hope. If they would come on up now, that would be great.